0: we afraid of the novel, the new? And how do we handle that fear? What can we learn about Afrofuturism through a non-Western lens? Who are we as parents? And what does being a parent mean? Host Elena Fernandez-Collins discusses these questions and more with Sophia Cheyatam and Adatola Abdul-Qadir of Obsidian right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hello and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I am audio producer Will Williams, sitting in for your host Elena Fernandez Collins. Today, you'll be hearing an interview host Ellie had with Sofia Cheatom and Adatola Abdul Kadir, the creators of Obsidian, which you heard in our showcase last week. I had the great joy of editing this conversation together. If you don't already know, we release full interviews for our Patreon supporters. More on that later. And it falls to me what stays in this public release and what goes up for the patrons. Choosing what to edit out in this interview was a struggle. Sophia and Atatola are as brilliant as they are charismatic. In our showcase, Ellie spoke on Obsidian's use of lunar cycles. And that rhythm is so clear between this creative duo as well. One answers, the other picks up. The other adds on, and the conversation keeps becoming more insightful. Without further ado, let's get to this gorgeous conversation on AI, Isaac Asimov, Nigerian influences in writing, and so much more.
1: Thank you so much for coming on to RDR. Uh, We're really, really excited to talk about um, Obsidian with the both of you and all this really cool uh, Afrofuturism uh, science fiction that you have. Thank you for having us.
2: I'm glad to be here.
1: Yeah, it's going to be wonderful. So let's let's set the stage for our audience, right? So the two of you are the Obsidian co-creators, and you work in interdisciplinary intersections of um, science and data, art, and storytelling. And you, you mentioned in the phase one roundtable that you had been trading stories and working creatively together for two or three years before Obsidian. So elaborate on this a little bit. How did the two of you meet and how did you end up creating and, and leading to the Obsidian project?
2: Oh, wow. I haven't heard about the roundtable in a little bit. So you, you... <laughs> I
3: know, right? I was like, thank you for right, listening right? to way <laughs>
2: right back to the past. Um, it feels like forever with the pandemic. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mutual friends, really. Uh, I think that was 2014. Um, I was a student at College Park, University of Maryland, College Park. And Sophia was at Towson, I believe, Towson University. And we had mutual friends that Mm -hmm. Sophia had gone to, uh, like, a high school, I believe, with um, that went to my school. um, Mm -hmm. And that connected us. And, you know, I was studying uh, bioengineering at the time. And Sophia, can you say what you were studying again? I kind of forgot.
3: I was, yeah. (laughs) So I was going to Towson for electronic media. That's it. And... It's a pretty broad program, but you do everything from like script writing to recording and just making short films, all of that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So mutual friends, we we met. Um, first off, we're just like regular friends. Then we realized we both had like an interest in, you know, storytelling. Um, and at the time, I was like in a very STEM oriented, you know, academic program that was really interesting and cool, but kind of left my creative side uh, wanting. Um, so when I realized I feel you know like telling stories and had like a, a vision, a narrative vision, then just for the fun of it, we just started exchanging yeah. stories, as you said, um, like little short story challenges. It, it was a really fun time. <laughs> we do.
3: Yeah, it was like a writing yeah. challenge just to get our creative juices going.
2: We do like like three minutes, you have to write about a random word. And I think, like so sometimes we've read about balloons and you know all the types of zany stuff. Um, yeah, that's how, that's how the the relationship began.
3: Uh mm-hmm. Um Ade was the one who proposed the podcast, actually, and at that time I was like, oh no, everybody's making podcasts. I don't want to <laughs> those people. But because he proposed it as like a, a audio drama, I was more willing to entertain the idea i guess um and when we really started talking about it i was like okay this is actually cool like short storytelling that was actually attainable for a sci-fi genre which is hard to do in um visual Mm -hmm. so uh, i was really excited about that part
2: yeah and um at the time i had like so i'd actually transferred to umbc at that point so this is probably three to four years, actually it was more than that, maybe almost five years after we had met. Um, and I had been listening to audio dramas, I fell in love with podcasts maybe a year or two before that. And um, audio dramas were like a really fascinating and intimate you know, method of storytelling that I hadn't really experienced before, at least through podcasts. Um, but they were like overwhelmingly white, you know, I was never mm-hmm. hearing voices like myself, I was never seeing characters like myself with backgrounds that were even slightly parallel to me. And not to say the stories that existed, out oh, they were bad. They were, you know, good in their own right. But I realized, like, there was such a huge gap um, that was that was in that, you know, field of storytelling. And, you know, like I said, Sophia was, has such a great narrative vision, and I had a bunch of ideas. So she literally was the first person I thought of when it came to, like, trying to do a project like this. And it was actually Sophia that introduced the concept of, like, injecting Afrofuturism as the main, like, uh you know platform thematic platform for the project
3: wow did i i have no memories yes yes you <laughs> did you.
2: yes you did you were studying um wb wb the boy mm-hmm. uh at least i think that's when mm-hmm. i began your studies into wb and mm-hmm. uh yeah just kind of i'm went glad we there. did
3: choose a central theme because it's given us a lot of direction and concentration because you know this, I feel like it could have went anywhere, the podcast, but I think it's gotten a lot of attention because of the theme of Afrofuturism.
1: Agreed. Yeah, Agreed. I yeah, absolutely agree. And actually, since since we're talking about this part here, um, so Sophia, because of, of the work that you were in and because of the, the things that you studied, you've created not only audio art, but also f- um, physical art installations, right? Yes. Um, like As Ritual or As Liminal or Specs and Sums and some short films. Goodness. One you've of done your... your research. <laughs> Thank We're you. very proud of our research here yeah. at RDR. <laughs> um, and one of your inspirations, as, as Ade mentioned, is um, W.E.B. Du Bois and his data visualizations and the story The Princess Steel. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about your perspective of Du Bois as a proto Afrofuturist and how those influences appear in Obsidian.
3: That's an amazing question. So I have written a whole paper about this because I strongly believe. I mean, honestly, he probably called himself. Okay, the term was not existing then. But if he knew the term, he would probably call himself an Afrofuturist as well. I read the paper. Um, it's really good. Uh, thank you. Um, so, of course, Du Bois' life work was about Black uplift and showing that in different ways so photography and um, data visualizations as well as his activism and i just believe um in the form of mundane afrofuturism which is a whole another uh sector i guess i would say um which is the works that people are doing in their day-to-day lives to look toward a better future and envision what is not currently available to them, and I feel like Du Bois's activism through his visual work aligned with Afrofuturism in that way, as well as his own short fiction writing with you know, black characters and sci-fi. <laughs> um, and so that is how I believe Du Bois to be up. Uh, how do those influences uh, show up in Obsidian? Hmm, a day, okay, How does it show up in Obsidian?
2: Well, are we speaking? Are we asking about Afrofuturism and how that like shows up in Obsidian?
3: I think uh, Du Bois specifically and his influence. I'm thinking Mm. about our episode. Yes. Let me
2: think.
3: I
0: mean,
2: I think. I mean, you are the the expert on you know (laughs) Du Bois, but I do like think a lot about his data visualizations and how they were like an attempt to find a story within you know. Everyday struggles um, that you know the black community were facing at that point, and they were so like so, so forward thinking. He really was a futurist by all intents and purposes. It was so forward thinking, and I think that is in the, like the essence of Afrofuturism. And of itself, like, is speculative. It's trying to like answer questions in the present with by looking into the future or by using tools for the future. Mm-hmm. And I think um, Obsidian tries to do that. You know, we try to make it fun. Um, We try to make it entertaining, but we do have like, you know, the foundation of it, like we said, is Afrofuturism and the foundation, I think, is trying to look at certain issues, topics and, you know, running themes within our communities and, you know, across the globe um, from like a different angle. I think people do have a hard time sometimes looking at present situations with clarity Um, and, you know, fiction is such a powerful tool. Um, There's a reason like so many people rely on it in certain ways because it allows people to like kind of separate from their from the present world and like look at a situation that runs that's similar, but with a you know different you know setup, um, and so the clarity that maybe that brings sometimes um, is, is something something that I think Obsidian tries to uh, employ ourselves. So partially, I, I guess if I was to try to connect it to WB, um, it would be like the clarity that he tried to bring with his own work by you know the data figures and, and you know some of his short stories like The Princess Steel.
3: I think also um, I was really inspired by the creation of a tool that did not exist but could do uh, wondrous things. Like in the Princess Steel, there's a a device called... um, Actually, I don't know what the device was called, but it could see... It's called a a Megascope, I think. Yes. (laughs) And it could see the Great Near. Microscope? Yeah, and I was like... Fantastic. You just created this device and now that now your characters are interacting with it in the story and I'd been thinking of like futuristic things that could be a part of daily life in one of our stories. Let's see. I feel like I'm thinking Absolutely. about off the grid. Um <laughs> yeah. Not. Yeah. All of our stories. Yeah, all of them.
1: One. When... yes, okay, I was correct. Megascope. Sorry, I was making sure that I got the right the right name. Yeah. Um, for people who haven't read the Princess Deal yet, um, we will link to the Princess Deal in the show notes so that you can go read it. Um. <clears throat> um. Uh, Ade uh, you used to work for um. PGDX, which is a, a genome analysis and product development specifically for cancer research, which you've stated in your bio for Obsidian, that it gives you a unique perspective on how communities engage with tech. Um, tell me a little more about how your work as a, in, in uh, genome analytics or bioinformatics um, shows up in Obsidian stories and world building.
2: Oh, for sure. I think... Um... I mean, bioinformatics as a field, it really is just looking at the you know genomes and trying to like tell the story of genomics and try to like apply that to so many different situations. Um, at PGDX, and I no longer work for them. I actually work for a company called GeneWiz now. But PGDX was trying to apply something called precision medicine. So, for like a specific you know uh, patient, you can rather than like just give them any you know drug for their cancer, you can actually look at their specific can- uh, genome profile and give them the best drug for their cancer because um, you know many people can have breast cancer, but can, it can uh, come to be in different ways. It can be different like mutations that actually cause um, breast cancer. Um, so like that really is like the medical approach for the future. Um, but on a larger scale and in, in how it like you know tries to um, affect our storytelling, I'd say the most direct um, thing is maybe our recent phase, mm-hmm. which is uh, called the DNA data storage phase. Um, mm-hmm. so I, have been looking to, cause I'm kind of a nerd about DNA. <laughs> I kind of have to be <laughs> for my job. Really? You know, I, yeah. So <laughs> I look into like, you know, recent research around like, you know, DNA profiling itself, um, manipulation of DNA, um, DNA editing, gene editing, all that type of stuff. And there was, um, there's actually a couple studies, but there was like a really big study, um, by Harvard, I believe. And... Uh, the date I think is 2017 that they did this, but they mm-hmm. managed to take um, algae and put like actual fi- uh, a movie, a short film within like the DNA of algae. And essentially, what they're doing is that what? they're taking like <laughs> the screen, right? <laughs> like a screen is composed of multiple pixels, and like if you just say like the position of a pixel, and then tell you say if whether it's black or white, if you do that a number of times across the entire like frame, you can well you can make a frame. And you just keep doing that, you you know, and sequentially those frames become like a moving picture, they become like a little movie. And so they managed to compress and fit all that into uh, the DNA of algae. And so I was like big brain moment, oh my God, what if they did this with humanity? Like what, imagine if we got to a point that, you know, humans ourselves could store DNA or information rather within our DNA. So that's like the big scientific concept. But then, like this is what I think Obsidian tries to do. We try to tie it to real world uh, concepts and real world like um, issues, and like surveillance is a big thing today. Um, surveillance across so many different fields, like digitally, um, tech wise, you know, we're probably all being tracked somehow, some way. Human um, trafficking. But you know, yeah. but let's take it to the next step, like. You know, some people think there's a, chi- <laughs> some people are trying to put like a chip <laughs> in your brain. I don't think that has to happen. But what if like our DNA itself held data? That's kind of frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, and like when it comes to pers- a prophesization of the body by like a larger entity, uh, something, you know, bigger than yourself, um, then it gets a little frightening what can happen. Things are already happening today. But again, like when you take such a far out there concept, like, your own body holds DNA, then it's easier for you to grasp than like, um, you know, surveillance today and like what it means when you uh, share TikToks and give TikTok access to like your email and your phone number and all of that. Um, so I think that's where the idea was coming from. So I, I try to use some of my own background, like like you said, in um, like DNA work, but also like the other things I nerd out regarding science to try to accentuate like the stories that we tell with uh, Obsidian.
1: I'm just yeah. going to let it be known right now that I, I refuse to let TikTok have access to my DNA. Mm-hmm. That's that's going to be a no. There's nothing important Blood. enough. <laughs> um, since we're talking about this also, like I want to I want to uh, talk a little bit about um, uh, Afrofuturism. And and Sophia, you've written about how the mainstream representation of Afrofuturism is often produced within a Western worldview. And your work um, often centralizes or at least addresses a non-Western focus Um, as ritual as liminal, for instance, is a critique of the Saudi government. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And those for those who haven't um, seen it, who um, in one part, uh, it's a it's a physical, um, physical artwork. And in one part, the audience is encouraged to circle the artwork to reenact ritualistic movements of Islamic pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. Do I have that right? Yes. Excellent. So how how would you say, for the both of you, right, that this this art and this uh, research into Afrofuturism and this background has developed or changed your storytelling
3: as a whole? I really like sci-fi movies where you can't tell what's actually the present day and what's like in the past and things like that. And so I really try to bring things from the past into my current life so that i'm not living like one track minded i like to keep my mind open to the possibilities of any and everything and i know like out otherworldly things are very unlikely to happen in my life but if they did i would like to be open to them (laughs)
1: absolutely
2: Um, I think like in the process, the work that we've been doing uh, with my own background and then with Sophia's work as well, I just really try to emphasize the emotional aspect, like the real world aspect of these type of stories. Um, I think my my issue with a lot of, like sci-fi is such a huge genre now. It's definitely going Mm -hmm. through a sort of resurgence. And I think one of my biggest frustrations with with, uh, a lot of stories that are told in sci-fi is that they're so unemotional. Um, and they try to like step away as far as they can from like just regular human dynamics, right? And they focus so much on the actual like tech aspect or the sci-fi concept that the movie is like relying on. It almost becomes like kind of a gimmick. And, um, but these are things, at least in our day-to-day uh, lives have that have huge impacts on, will um, have a huge impact on regular day-to-day people, right? Like some of the things that we're going through right now are considered dystopian like by people 50 years in the in the past um and i think like stories from 50 years in the past 100 years in the past and so on that really try to like dig or like target the emotional weight of these like uh, technologies are you know help us kind of understand the present and i kind of want to tell stories like that for the future as well mm-hmm. um like Isaac Asimov like his discussions on like you know automation versus humanity and what makes like what defines the human mind, for example, like that kind of helped uh, support like uh, Sunset Sunrise and like the story that we we're trying to tell there about like, you know, the human soul and whether, or 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 motherhood and parentage and like what that actually means. And, um, you know, with that story actually, uh, just to kind of segue into that myself, I am not the host, so I shouldn't be segueing into
0: not <laughs> topics, <laughs> but, but
2: <laughs> just, just to talk about a little bit, um, Sunset Sunrise, and I'm gonna try not to spoil. Could have been a really simple um, story about like you know automation, um, but I, we wanted to tell something a little bit more, you know, something that had a little bit more of a soul, you know, um, and like in in the way that we formulated it. Um, a lot of it is actually about parentage. A lot of it is about, yes, like, uh, you know, what does it mean to be human, but also what does it mean to mother or to father and what and who defines what that actually is. And I think like presently, like uh, we are going through a very interesting age in the West and across the globe on a gender identity and like what it means to be like one gender versus the other, um, what gender, where gender comes from and how it's uh, defined. And, you know, with like mar- gay marriage becoming legal, like what is the family structure supposed to look like? These are like currently ideas that we're really wrestling with. Um, and like the story, so like, that's like more interesting and compelling story to me, like the, the emotional weight of trying to define that for oneself. And like in the future, I hope like people will look back on this and be like, okay, so this is where they were looking, uh, coming from. And this is like how they were wrestling with it. Um, and yeah, that's just the type of stories that I think we try to tell, that I personally try to tell, and that actually interests me in the first place. So engaging with like all this, all these other sci-fi, or sorry, like all these other works, um, from W. B. um to like you know present attempts at Afrofuturism, like Black Panther, I guess. Um, kinda... That
3: sounds like shade. <laughs> we'll never get a collab with Ryan Coogler now. Oh no, no! Oh no! Oh no!
2: <laughs> now I think Ryan could take some criticism, but regardless, like those have ha- really helped me understand what I do value actually in sci-fi, what I do value in storytelling, um, and it's not just the gimmicky like tech concept. It's actually like the human weight or the emotional weight of these human stories.
0: Earlier this week, I saw a comment on a friend's Facebook post mentioning that Radio Drama Revival was how they got to know some of their favorite podcasts. That made me think, hmm, I suppose I shall cry in pride. And I did. I'm very proud to make this show, and I hope we can keep making it for another 14 seasons to come. Radio Drama Revival is a labor of love, and while we do love making this podcast and connecting you with great audio dramas, it is still labor. It would mean everything to us if you would consider becoming one of our supporters on Patreon. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Revival. Becoming a supporter means you get access to extended interviews, a secret Discord server, and blackmail files. Like blooper reels! Now, almost back to the interview, but first, I'd like to give you a quick content warning for Sounds of Thunder for the remainder of the episode.
1: Yeah. So actually, yeah, let's talk about Sunset, Sunrise, because it's it's our, it's showing up a lot in our conversation. Right. And it's it's just good because it's probably one of my favorite stories that you've produced, especially it with its. Um, one of the
3: strongest.
1: Yeah, especially with its like cyclical dreamlike nature of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Really impressive. Um, So the question that I have written for this is um, what is it about? Our technological progress that makes us fear it the way we do—a way that is reflected not only in our science fiction, but in the way that we handle the realities about things like surveillance and data mining.
2: I think there was a point where we thought the future would be much more glamorous than it than it is, right? We thought like uh, it'd be like the Jetsons or (laughs) something—flying
3: cars, (laughs) (laughs) yeah,
2: flying cars, hoverboards, robots that tend to our every need, jetpacks. You know, it's a very fun fun future um and you know the future that we got is a little bit more dystopian and I, I think the the real the real problem here is that like so much agency was taken away from individuals you know like it's not very interesting to see that you know Jeff Bezos has managed to like, make what is a blue orbit or something that, you know, sends people Ah. to travel in space. Like that's cool, I guess, but your everyday human being is not going to have any, you know, relationship with that. It's going to be extremely expensive and they actually don't get to take part in that quote unquote future oriented thing. So you either get like some distance from the, some, from this technology or it actually damages you, right? Like the cell phone now can do what computers that occupied two rooms could do like 50 years ago. Right. Um, But also our cell phones now are like disengaging us from each other. Um, They're making us more individualistic. You know, they're taking away from our community, even though we think, you know, social media really helps with that. We've seen from like the past four to six years how much social media like actually cripples a society. Um and then when then with all that being said, it's also tracking you, all this information and privacy is being taken advantage of. So like already presently, we're like a lot of these um concepts or like a lot of these like tech innovative things that were that were um glamorous in the past to like imagine have come to like bite us in the ass or Excuse my language, but it's in the butt in the You're present, <laughs> and so now, like now, we look to the future, and it's kind of hard to be excited about technology. Now it's just even more frightening, and it's been frightening in the past. But I think like this, these, like the internet age, has kind of rapidly progressed, like our fears around things, um, and and yeah. So I, I think that's why people are generally just really afraid of what's to come. Um, yeah.
3: I think my answer would be that. Because technology is progressing so quickly or advancing, I think people are afraid of when we get to a point where it's out of our control and we no longer can, you know, tell the android what to do. (laughs) Um, And that is what... um, So when we were talking with our cast um, before we recorded, uh, which ones? Was it just Sunset Sunrise? Maybe just this one episode. So it was only one person. But uh, we showed them a video of... And their name is Kosey. P-M, a video of Janelle Monet talking about how she's on the side of the android. And she doesn't talk bad uh, about yeah them Because yeah. Yeah. she's like, they're going to be my friends. I'm not going to, you know say anything rude about the android basically and i was like that is a good perspective to have because maybe in the future it does get out of our hand and this uh the zor creatures like the zor do wind up existing and we want to be their friend Mm -hmm. (laughs)
1: Mm -hmm. um so you mentioned actually this um nigerian uh storytelling perspective that influenced uh sunset sunrise and i'd love to hear more about that
2: oh yeah well um i guess the most direct one is um i had my parents act as uh (laughs) the the robot's mother and father or the creators of the robot so that's uh they got some credits you know they got some voice acting credits i think the only ones that they ever had or and (laughs) may ever have in the future we'll see but um but yeah so they're they're the creators of it and so uh, it's a Nigerian team that creates the the robot uh, Sheda in uh, in the first place, and I, I just thought that'd be cool. You know, like why not? You never you rarely see like an African research team be the like uh, main creator or main like character as a team at least in a sci-fi uh, movie, let alone a movie. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, might as well. But um, Sheda actually means it's a Yoruba word or Yoruba phrase. It's Sheda, which means to create. And so, um, you know, spoilers, spoilers, like you said, like, you know, by now you already know what's going on, listener. But um, yeah, like Shadow is uh, is a robot in of itself. And he, you know, desires to create himself, to create other things as, as he has been created. And actually kind of ties to the like parentage um, thing I was talking about, like what it means to be a father or a mother. Because to me, like when we we're putting together the episode, I really felt like he yearned to be. The mother that created him. Like, first off, so first of all, he defined his creator as a mother, and then he yearned to do the same. And um, with the Zor, they see him as a father or a mother. And um, so, like, whose place is it to define that as wrong? You know, what does that even mean to, to mother? Do you have to actually give birth to something like the way that we know uh, humans and mammals to do, or if it's creating the same relationship? Um, so together, all together, that was like the idea we were playing with and um, with the Nigerian influences, some of uh, some components of like the tribe that uh, Sheda is from are actually tied to like uh, the culture from the country that he was created in Nigeria itself. So like singing around a fire or the singing in general is a very Nigerian thing to do, um, especially like, you know, together. Um, so I was trying to like input some parts of culture within that. Um, and, and yeah, now something I would love to do in the future is actually put some like Nigerian mythos um, into my stories. Um, and that's like steering a little bit away from sci-fi and more into like something mystical and like fantasy. But there are so many, like there's a long line of Nigerian Greek uh, Nigerian gods um, and goddesses that are kind of similar to Greek gods and goddesses. So I would love eventually to like use that as a storytelling uh, tool. Um, but for now, it was really just injecting culture um, into like Sheda's background and um, using the, the language itself, Yoruba, to uh, define who he is.
3: I forget how multi layered that story is. Yeah,
1: there's a lot to talk about for Sunset
3: Sunrise. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: why is there so much? Why for you, right? Um, is there so much fear? about artificial intelligence and their integration into our societal relationships, not only historically, but particularly currently.
2: Oh, man, there is a really there's a paper out there. I wish I could remember what the name of it is. I wish I could remember the researcher. I really wish I could def- define it, or maybe it's an essay. But uh, the idea is um, about how like AI and the robot itself is um, a metaphor for the the worker, you know? Like the the worker in industry, um, or the worker in a factory. Ooh. I'm sorry, it is storming out here. Oh my God. So oh, okay.
3: okay. Yeah. Wow. All right. I think you're talking about Ruha Benjamin's um she has a chapter in her book about the slave and coming from the word robot and the etymology of it all. Is that what you're talking about, or no?
2: Kind of like so that's race after technology, mm-hmm. which is a great book. Everybody should read. But like even in that, I think she's referencing something uh, something else. But you know, I mean, I still think that's a great place to look to for anybody that's curious about like where where that. Uh, research is going, what we're talking about, but um, yeah, like there's a large point here about like if the if the AI becomes closer and closer to humanity, I think that's our fear, right? Because we realize that the AI and the work and the robot is the ultimate like slave. It is a worker for us, right? That has no feelings, can't complain about compensation, can't complain about wages, and um, we're cool with that until it can talk back and until it challenges us. Just the same way that, like, you know, CEOs and and companies are completely fine with stagnating, you know, wage increases um, for like decades on end, right? Like, it's the same exact thing. And all of a sudden, you take, you democratize the opportunity to be like the slave master in this case. You democratize like um, owning a worker that works for you without complaint. Uh, again, but the the, the the fear with AI, the fear of that intelligence is that now you're also taking that responsibility of having a worker that, is, that challenges you, that wants more out of that relationship, but doesn't even want that relationship in the first place. And that is, I think, the inherent fear that we all have about it. Like in the future, if this thing can think for itself, they can eventually say, I don't want this. And what does that mean for us? Because we know it sucks for us when we talk to our bosses. Or if we're treated like badly by our boss or by our company, we hate that, and so we're we're afraid of having that same relationship uh be replicated by somebody else
3: or something else. Mm-hmm. just like having to navigate a new type of relationship. Uh, I don't think we're ready for that, especially because of the pandemic. We're just starting to really interact with other humans again. And I've been seeing lots of things about people forgetting like you know what's okay in normal <laughs> interactions like on the internet people are like oh i forgot like that's not okay in a in a in-person conversation kind of thing like manners and etiquette and all of that <laughs> we, yeah. wow fascinating just developing <laughs> yeah, a new type of relationship
2: yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We developed a really close relationship with our tech during the pandemic.
2: It's been kind of crazy um, yeah. how much I hate working from home after um, <laughs> like a year of this, right? I've never had such an intimate connection to tech, I, I think. Like, mm-hmm. I worked in an office and I worked on a computer, but I was surrounded by individuals and people as well. And it feels like it's kind of, I-, I sense a cultural shift because of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have one last question. Um, so in the phase one, uh, round table, you talked about the balance of positive and negative aspects of relationships, um, with things like isolation and codependency. Talk to me about the importance of complicating the story, uh, within hopeful or futuristic frameworks with these kinds of things. Hmm. Like, why is it important within a hopeful or futuristic framework to also have negative aspects of relationships present as well as positive?
2: I think, I mean, like, it's just more realistic. <laughs> like, yeah, I was just going to
3: say that. There's no you know, uh, there's no utopian uh, existence right now, at least. There's always <laughs> conflict and there's always just, you know. What do they say? You have to have the lows to have highs, something like that. Mm-hmm.
2: Exactly. Like I imagine, so, I mean, it's so depressing. It's so depressing, but even now um, with climate change like kind of here and the, the worst symptoms of climate change on the horizon. Um, I've, have you guys heard conversations about people, whether people are willing to have children now? Like yeah. I've been, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really sad, but I've been hearing people go like, I don't know if I want to raise a child in this situation because like, will they have a world to live in um, 50 years in the future? Like, will, will I just be raising them to to be doomed in a way? And if not their generation, maybe the next one is actually the one that's doomed. Um, and I, I don't, I can't even say that's completely unvalid. Um, I, I think it's complete. I think those emotions are really valid, but I mm-hmm. still think it's important to have a child, at least for me. Uh, everybody mm-hmm. can, you know, do their make their own decisions. But I think for me, it is important because that to me is having hope for the future, right? That's having hope that you no, know, we can't fix some of these problems. We can't fix fix some of these issues. And you know, regardless of what people feel, I do think like that is a negative um, and positive, like both negative positive um, discussions around relationships and discussions around the future that would have to exist in any story about climate change. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the same can be said about like some of the stories that we're telling here uh, with Off the Grid, which is a much more uh, small scale. Uh, we definitely showed that like their relationship was going with, through its ups and downs, but ended on a positive, and no- positive note when, you know, they needed to band together uh, to, to win, to not like, you know, die from this AI creature. Mm-hmm. I will say the complication arose when we cuz they're like a lesbian couple and we didn't want to fall into like the bucket of having every like queer couple be like dysfunctional mm-hmm. <laughs> you know we were kind of mm-hmm. afraid of that or like have it was sad in the mind a lot
3: cuz that's something that I had seen happening a lot like a lot of um queer and gay couples were talking about how in fiction the story always ends like terribly for them and i'm just like yeah i don't yes. want to perpetuate that
1: i had a really good conversation with both of you um you're both really brilliant and i'm looking forward to the next installment in dna DNA storage, storage kidnap data <laughs> storage.
3: <laughs> dna data
1: storage yeah got it i i title's not my strong suit gonna be honest <laughs>
0: If you liked what you heard, you can donate to Obsidian via PayPal by following the donate button at obsidianpodcast.com or following the donate link in our podcast episode description. Radio Drama Revival runs on late summer caprese and early fall pumpkin treats. If you'd like to help keep us afloat by featuring new, diverse, and unique audio fiction podcasts and their creators, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. And now, we bring you our Moment of Anne. The month of September continues to drag on, and I just wish it could be October because that's my birthday, and then I go on vacation, and, you know, I'm very tired. But I love making Radio Drama Revival, and one thing that always helps is that I have a cup of tea when I record. It just makes the whole process more peaceful and zen, and calming instead of being stressful. So I'd like to recommend that everyone go have a cup of tea right now. I don't care if it's 3am, go make yourself a cup of tea. It can be decaf, it doesn't have to have caffeine. Maybe I like caffeine at nine o'clock at night, but that's me, you do you, drink some tea. That means it's time for the credits. This episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the Ocumel O'odham people. Colonizers named this place Mesa, Arizona. If you are looking for ways to support or donate to Native communities, the Kiliute are fundraising to move their at-risk community to higher ground and out of the tsunami zone so that their culture and heritage can thrive for generations to come. Their first objective is to move the Quileute Tribal School, which is currently located right next to the beach, endangering the lives of children and the future of the Quileute Tribe. You can learn more and donate at mthg.org. The link is in the episode description. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Ducks by the band Kylo Kaz. You can find their music on Free Music Archive. Our audio producer is Will Williams. Our marketing manager and line producer is Ann Baird. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our submissions editor is Rashika Rao. Our associate marketing manager is Jillian Schrager. Our transcriptionist is Katie Yeomans. Our audio consultant is Eli Hamada McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhalish and David Reinstrom. Our mascot is Ticker Tape the Goat. I'm Will Williams, filling in for your host, Elena Fernandez Collins. This has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.